the birthday of a king. God coming down to us. There was a hit song several years ago, and I don't recommend the song in its entirety, but in it, the singer Joan Osborne asked this question. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And that became the theme song of a TV show for a while. Whenever I would hear that song, I would want to shout out, but he did. He did. He is one of us. He came to us. He knows what our lives are like. Last week, we looked at the fact that this baby is the God who comes to us. In the messes that we have made of life, he comes to us. He doesn't stand aloof. And this week, we are going to see that not only does he come to us, he became one of us. But what does that mean? That God became one of us. Well, John tells us in John chapter 1, in a very non-traditional Christmas story, there's no angels, there's no shepherds, no magi, no manger. And yet John takes a step back behind all of that and allows us a glimpse into the plan of God and what God accomplished through sending Jesus. And he makes three amazing assertions about who this baby is to show us God becoming one of us. He begins with these words in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He wants us to understand that this baby is the eternal God and creator. Those first words, in the beginning, made John's readers should make us think of Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 starts the same way. In the beginning, God created. But instead, John says, in the beginning was the Word. And he wants us to understand that Jesus, who is the Word, we'll see that clearly in verse 14, has always existed. Now, throughout this passage, John is going to use the word was. Just three little words in English, actually two little, or three little letters, two little letters in Greek. But the idea of that word and the verb tense is that he has existed in the beginning existed the Word. So when creation came into being, he was already here because he has always existed. And throughout this passage, John will contrast that he was with things that became. Now, it's not always obvious in English because in John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God, literally should be translated, there became a man. The man John the Baptist became, Jesus was. He's always existed. John uses the name, the Word, for Jesus. 
Because again, he's thinking of Genesis 1, the creative speech of God as he speaks the world into existence. But he's also using this to kind of contextualize things for his Greek audience. Because the Greeks understood the word, the logos is the Greek word, as being the creative energy of the universe. And so he's saying to them, let me tell you who the creative energy of the universe is. He's a person. His name is Jesus. And he was, he existed from all eternity with God. And the word was with, literally was face to face with God. The word was God. And so John wants us to understand that the word, Jesus, was in a relationship with He was with God, in relationship with God. Didn't do this at all. (laughs) He was with God. He wants to make that distinction because Jesus is not the Father. He's the Son. He is face to face in relationship with the Father. And so he's trying to make that distinction that Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. And then he says, but he is God. The Word existed as God. In Greek grammar, you could actually put a little equal sign there. The word equals God. He was existing as God. Now it's interesting because you may have somebody come and knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they will try to tell you that this verse should be translated, the word was a God. If they try to tell you that, understand that that is a violation of Greek grammar. It's not correct. In my younger and more ornery days, I was at home while I was in seminary one day, and there was a knock at the door, and there was a Jehovah's Witness. And so they began to, he began to share, and I began to tell him that I believed that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Oh, no, 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 no. And so I talked about John 1. He said, well, you need to understand that John 1 is mistranslated in your Bible. That it should be translated, the word was a God. And I said, oh, really? Yeah. I said, it's that way in the original? Oh, yeah. I said, okay, just, just a minute. And I walked away and I grabbed my Greek New Testament, ornery days, and I handed it to him and I said, could you show me where it says that? And of course, he couldn't. He'd just been taught that. But it's a vi- and, and we tried to talk a little longer, but he beat a, beat a pretty hasty retreat after that. Because it is not a God, it is God. 
Jesus existed, the Word existed as God. And then just to make sure that we get it, he comes right back full circle again and said, he existed in the beginning face to face with God. It's the strongest way that John can really say Jesus is God without making him the same as the Father, which he's not. He's the Son. But he wants us to clearly understand that Jesus has always existed. And more than that, that Jesus created everything. See, he's not creature. He wasn't made by God. Indeed, he, as God, has created everything. All things, that's pretty comprehensive, all things were made, or literally you could translate it, it's that same word, came into being through him, and without him was not anything, nothing came into being that came into being. And so in no uncertain terms, John says, Jesus is creator. He says it again in verse 10. He was, he existed in the world, and the world became through him. And not only is he the creator of all, more specifically, John says, he's the creator of man, of humanity. And it may be that in John's mind is that Genesis 1 and 2 passage. And so in verse 3, like Genesis 1, he says, Jesus created everything. And then in verse 4, like Genesis 2, he focuses his attention down on humanity. And he says, in him, in Jesus, was life. He's the source. He's the root of all physical life. And the life was the light of men. He's also the root and the source of light. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see he's called the light. The light being spiritual life. And so he wants us to understand that both physical life and spiritual life are rooted in this one person, Jesus who created everything. He is life and he is light. Who is this baby? He's the eternal God and creator. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great prophet. He's not a spiritual guru. He's not a God. He is God. At this season of the year, it's very often a popular thing because there's still a residue of spiritual connection in Christmas in our culture. It's popular for major news outlets to do some kind of a story about Jesus or Jesus' birth, but in it, rarely will you hear him identified as eternal God and creator. You'll hear that, well, he, he was a good teacher. He's a good moral example for us. If people just lived more like him, the world would be better. Well, that's all true, but he's more than that. He is the eternal God and the creator. And we are called by John's gospel to stand in wonder at the manger. Many of us have, have heard the stories and, and known Jesus for so many years that we, we forget the wonder that is here. That in the manger on that first Christmas was 
God, the creator, the eternal one was born. Eternity stepped into time and took on our flesh. That's amazing and should cause us to wonder. Jesus is the eternal God and creator. But John also gives us a second amazing assertion about the baby. This baby is the God-man. He is not just God, he entered our world as a man. And so John wants us to understand that the one that he's identified as the word, as the creator, as the source of life and of light, Jesus became one of us, but more than us. And so we jump to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 1, he was, he existed as God. Chapter 1, verse 14, he became something he wasn't before, flesh. John doesn't use the normal word for humanity. He uses the word for this stuff that we're made out of. And I think he does it deliberately because he wants to contrast the immaterial God of chapter 1, verse 1, who has always existed with the God who took on this stuff that you and I are made out of, this flesh, this humanity. One of our very early computers had a chess game on it. And I'm fairly convinced that the computer cheated at chess, But when it would have you backed into a corner, maybe check or checkmate, in this really snarky voice, it would say, it must be hard being human. And I thought about that this week. Because you could put that over the manger. It must be hard being human. Imagine what it was like for the infinite creator, the eternal creator of the universe, to become a human Baby, I can't fully fathom that, neither can you, but we can wonder at it. And John says, Jesus' humanity and deity were seen. This isn't just something he's imagined or he's making up. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us literally tabernacled among us, and that makes us think of the Old Testament tabernacle, God's presence with his people. Now God's presence with his people is this little baby who grows into a man. He became flesh, and he dwelt, he lived among us. He was accessible to us. John lived with him and walked with him for three years watching and observing him. And one of the things that John understood and one of the things that nobody ever questioned is that Jesus was fully human. In John's gospel, just a few chapters over, we see him leaning against a well. He's tired after a day of walking and he's thirsty. He's human. In John chapter 11, we see him standing at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and we see him groaning and weeping. He's fully human. 
In John chapter 19, we see him bleeding and dying because he is human. He is one of us. But he's more than us. John tells us, we also saw, and the word we have seen, we saw, means we closely examined and observed his glory. He's more than human. He is God. He's the Shekinah glory of God. And I don't know for sure what John had in mind when he said we've seen it. Maybe it was his whole experience with Jesus. Maybe it was what he is about to explain through his gospel, the seven sign miracles that mark Jesus out as the Savior and the God. Maybe it was an experience that John doesn't talk about in his gospel. The other three gospel writers do. Maybe in his mind he's thinking of the transfiguration where John and James and Peter see the glory of God shining out through Jesus. Or maybe, and this is where I tend to think he's thinking, maybe he's thinking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because that's the climax of the, of the revelation of who he is. And the climax of John's gospel is chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas looks at the risen Jesus and says, My Lord and my God, we have seen his glory, John writes. Whatever it is he's thinking of, he's saying, We have seen that this one is the glory of God, God in the flesh. He is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. From the Father. You may have a translation that says the only begotten Son, which is not the best translation. It leads to thinking, well, somehow he is begotten by God, and no, he is the eternal Son. He is the unique, one of a kind, the only Son from the Father. And John's conclusion is that he is full of grace and truth. What he means is, I've examined, we've examined him, and we've seen that he's fully human, that he is fully God, and he is sinless. All that flows out of his life is grace. All that he does and all that he says is truth. And I'd remind you that John lived and walked with him for three years, and yet he says that's he was sinless. Now, you might look up here and say, well, Pastor Bill probably never gets discouraged, and he probably never is impatient, and if you were to catch Peggy, she would tell you that is not the case, because she lives with me, and she knows all of my frailties and faults and sinfulness, and yet John, who lived with Jesus and walked with him and ministered with him, says he had no sin. He was full of grace and truth. His humanity his deity, they were seen. Who is this baby? He is the God-man. You want the big theological phrase you can impress people with? We're talking about the hypostatic union. How's that for a big phrase? Simply means he was 100% man and 100% God, and they were united in one person, and yet they weren't mixed. He's one person that is 100% God and 100% man. How in the world can that be? I don't know. I can't explain that. 
The theologians argue about it, but they can't really explain it either. Neither can you. But that's not the most important question. The most important question is not how did this happen, but why? Why in the world did God become fully human while being fully God? And that answer is easy for you and for me. He became one of us because it was only as one of us that he could take our place as our substitute and die on the cross for our sins. But it was only as one of us who was also God, infinite, that his sacrifice could be sufficient for every one of us who would believe. He had to be God and man. And he was. So we come to the manger and we stand in awe. We stand in wonder there. This is the creator lying there in a manger. This is the creator who, as we sang earlier, will learn to walk on the ground that he created. This is the creator who will experience life as a normal human child who knows what it's like to go through what you and I go through. And a lot of times we think about his, his taking on humanity and knowing our experience, but Calvin tells us that Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He knows what our emotions are like. He's experienced those. He knows us inside and out. And he came for that purpose. So we stand in wonder. But there's also a challenge here. Because we have to ask ourselves, if he came to be my Savior, is he my Savior? Have you ever reached out and taken the gift and accepted the eternal life that is available because Jesus became one of us and died on a cross to pay for our sins and rose again? And if the answer to the question is, no, I've never done that, there's no better time than Christmas season to do it because that's right now. And right now is the time for you to admit that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, and trust Christ. Which brings us to John's amazing third assertion. Because he's talked in the first five verses about Jesus is God. He's talked in verse 14 about Jesus is fully human and our Savior but in between there, he tells us that Jesus, this baby, is the spiritual dividing line. That all of humanity ultimately is not divided by ethnicity or language or culture. That all of humanity ultimately is divided by the one who is the decision point, by Jesus. And so we read in verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the author of the book. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So that word witness occurs three times in that verse. An important term through the whole book of John occurs almost 50 times. Because the book is written to show us who the light is, to show us Jesus. And indeed, John the Baptist came 
to proclaim who Jesus was that through him people might believe. Another critical word in the Gospel of John, believe, used almost a hundred times. So John is not the light. He sat to bear witness to Jesus because all humanity, every one of us in this room, those who are watching online, we are all called to believe in Jesus. And now, John says, in the Christmas story, the light is coming into the world. The true light, the light which lights everyone, which is the idea of general revelation, the created order that's out there because Jesus made it all. It bears witness to him, and all men can see that. But now that light was doing something new. The light was coming into the world as a human baby. All the revelation, all the light that humanity has about God comes through Jesus as creator of the creation and now as the one who came into that creation. Whether they receive it or not, the light is shining. And what John tells us is that most people reject Jesus. And we see that happen in the Gospel of John over and over again. One of the most astounding times is in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You would think a miracle like that, raising someone from the dead, would cause everybody to believe, to accept. But as you read the story, some of the people who saw that miracle hurry off to the religious leaders and report on Jesus. And they begin to plot how to kill him. And they stand as a representation of most of humanity which reject Jesus when they hear the story. The light and the life comes into the world, but men reject it. John's already said that back in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's tried, but it hasn't overcome it. Why is it so opposed well, later he'll explain in chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our sinful hearts cause us to reject, to turn away from the light, from Jesus, and to not accept him. And John goes on to tell us in verse 10 <coughs> that the creator of the world was in the world, <clears throat> and the world was made by him, and yet the world did not know him. So the knowledge of the creator was out there, it was in the creation, people could see it, and yet they rejected that word, and so something different happens. He comes. The creator enters the creation. He came to his own, to his own creation, to his own place. To his own house. The word could even signify to his own temple and his own people. The Jewish people did not receive him. Think about it. The Jewish people had not only the natural revelation of the creator in the creation, they had the inspired revelation in the Old Testament. 
And now the revelation from God, God the Son stands before him and they will not receive, they will not welcome him. Most people, even today, still reject Jesus. But some people do believe. And that's why we continue to share the message. That's why I continue to urge you, if you have never accepted Christ, to do so because God does work so that some believe. But to all who did receive him, welcome him. Who believed, placed their faith in his name and who he was and what he would do when dying on the cross. He gave the authority, the right, the privilege to become part of God's family, to become children of God. And John says they were born not of blood, not of human ancestry, not because they belonged to the right family, the Jewish nation, not of the will of the flesh, not something mankind designed or the will of man, but of God. Salvation is solely the work of God. It comes by faith in Christ alone. In John 3, he'll talk specifically about this new birth, but here he says, we can be born into God's family, not by anything we do, but by what Jesus has done when he died on the cross for your sins and mine and rose again. The word became flesh for a reason, to die for us so that we who believe, who receive him, receive supernatural new birth into God's family. Who is this baby? He's the spiritual dividing line. Because every human being ever born has to make a decision, will I trust God's plan of salvation or my plan of salvation? There's no neutrality here. A decision has to be made. Late President Ronald Reagan used to tell the story of how he realized sometimes you've got to make a decision. When he was just a boy, his uh, grandmother took him to the cobbler. That's how you did shoes in those days. For the cobbler to make him a pair of shoes. And after doing all the measurements of his foot, the cobbler asked Reagan, do you want round toe or square toe shoes? And Ronald Reagan said, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know in a couple days. So a couple days passed, and the cobbler was actually out on the street and bumped into Ronald Reagan, and he said, so young man, do you want round-toed or square-toed shoes? And Ronald Reagan said, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you know. A few days later, a package arrived at his house. It was his shoes. And when he opened the package, he discovered that one shoe had a round toe and one had a square toe. And he said, I learned at that point that if you don't make a decision, somebody will make it for you. Well, Jesus is the deciding point. He's the dividing line for all of humanity. And if you don't make a decision, the decision is made. You are rejecting him. You need to welcome him. You need to believe in him. You need to trust in him. As he will say a little later in the Gospel of John, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So have you ever come to the Father? Have you ever trusted Christ? Have you ever given up trying to get to heaven by your own good works and trusted in the only work that matters, which is the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who is this baby? He is the spiritual dividing line. And so John makes these amazing assertions about the baby that we see in the manger. 
that he's the eternal God and creator who has come to this earth as God and man, and we have to decide what we're going to do about that. And he calls us to step back and to be in amazement and wonder. If you've never accepted him as Savior, please, before you leave here this morning, talk to Pastor Steve or Pastor Jim or myself. If you have accepted him, then understand today that he loved you, he loves us enough to come and become one of us with all of the limitations that that entails. That he knows what it is to be tired, he knows what it is to be struggling with rejection because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what it is to suffer pain. He knows what it is to have people that he loved run away and turn away from him. He knows our human experience intimately because he became one of us. But because he's more than one of us, he's able to help us in our struggles, in our trials, in our suffering. story is told of a man named Charles Steinmetz, who was a good friend of Henry Ford. Steinmetz was a brilliant man. It said that he could design a, a motor or a mechanical device in his head and then build it just out of his head. Well, one day, Henry Ford's new assembly line in his factory quit running. And all of his engineers looked, and they could not figure out how to get it running again. And so they called for Charles Steinmetz to come. And Steinmetz came, and he looked around, poked around, tinkered for a couple of minutes, flipped the switch, and the assembly line began running again. A few days later, Henry Ford got a bill in the mail from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was an enormous sum in that day. And so he wrote back, and he said, Charles, don't you think $10,000 is a little excessive for a few minutes of tinkering? Steinmetz sent him a revised bill. It said, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. And I want you to know, folks, this morning that that Jesus knows exactly where to tinker in your life and mine because he was and is fully human. But he can do something about it because he's fully God. Let's pray together. Oops, I forgot one slide, didn't I? What if God was one of us? That's the question the song posts. He is. He is. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, Jehovah saves, sent to save his people from their sins. God with us, God in the flesh, the perfect God and man, fully both. Lord, we don't understand a lot of that, but we believe it. Our faith rests on it. We rejoice in it. And help us, even though we're familiar with so much of it, help us to wonder at it. Help us to stand in awe of it at this Christmas season. Thank you. 
Thank you for a Savior who is beyond our ability to fully understand or explain. It's in his name we pray. Amen.